you feel that with your ears there? Yeah, it's yeah. like a, when they close the doors on a plane. Yeah. Hey everyone, welcome back to the studio. And it's a great pleasure to actually be in the studio. This is a run of two, so... You know, I don't get too excited, but maybe face-to-face is the new face-to-face. So we're here in lovely London town, and Jamie, you're beaming in from the US of A. Hello, Jamie. Hello, Ian. It's, it all feels terribly um, uh, sort of hi-fi, though, all this. I managed to call in from America, but here we are uh, together, which is great. Yeah, I need to get a screen grab, because you're in your white shirt and your crew cut. You're looking very Jason Bourne today. Yes, but as I've told you many times, in as you agree, I've got a face for a podcast. So <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll keep that between ourselves then. So look, enough about us. Jamie said hello, I've said hello, but to our guests, I've got two lovely guests. Uh, I think they should tell us who they are. Megan, you kick off. Hello, everybody. I am Megan Ludlow. I work in Marks & Spencer's Innovation Partnerships Function. The IPF. IPF. I mean, we don't really call ourselves that, but we could do now. Mm, I, I think like that it. sounds more yeah. tactical. It does. Yeah. Good. Uh, Ali. Hello, Ian. So I'm um, Ali Holmes. I'm, I look after e-commerce channel development for PepsiCo. I've been with PepsiCo about five and a half years and excited to be here and chat a little bit more about me and everything that's going on around us. In the world of PepsiCo. Absolutely. Yeah. So should we start with you? Can do. Um, since we're talking already. So uh, PepsiCo, everyone thinks Pepsi and doesn't think the co. So why don't you just kick off and tell us what be PepsiCo? So a very good question, and one I often uh, have to explain and elaborate on. So obviously PepsiCo is Pepsi beverages, so we have the famous Pepsi brand and everything associated with that, Pepsi Max and various other variants. We've got Mountain Dew, we have Gatorade, uh, we have SodaStream as part of a, um, a recent acquisition um, in our beverages portfolio. So that's a, um, obviously a huge focus. And then we have a snacks portfolio, which is globally largely Lay's. But in the UK, you will know us as Walkers, kind of almost fabric brand of, uh, uh, of Britain. And then we have lots of other uh, associate brands, Doritos, uh, again, global. Um, but then we've got local brands in, in the UK, Piper's. We have things like Watsits, Quavers, you know, kind of staple covered items um, all the way through to the, you know, the big global brands such as Cheetos and things like that. So we have beverages, snacks, then we also have a a grains or or breakfast portfolio. So Quaker is the the umbrella brand for that, but we also have Scots and and a few other things. And depending on which market, you might see different variants of different brands. So the only thing I'm missing here is protein. You've got basically... Most most sources uh, other than protein. Well, I, I think there's a, a Quaker protein available, so you can probably uh, top up on a, a bit of protein there. But uh, good. So from breakfast, porridge, yeah. from breakfast through twenty four hours. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm just imagining your office with the free snacks. I think mm. I'd be done for. I wouldn't last a month. Yes, there is. It is amazing the uh, the level of, uh, of of generosity almost of, uh, of things available and things that aren't even on the market, which always always excites oh. me and the kids when you see things in in white bags. You know, please that, tell me there are super sours Cheetos coming. Uh, not too sure about that one, but there's some exciting things happening uh, in lots of other parts of the portfolio. Just watch out for what's it. Great. Now, um, you also mention Europe. Uh, how are you defining that? So global companies have a pretty flexible view yeah. of what be Europe. Uh, how are you defining it? Well, for us, Europe would be kind of what we know largely as the EU. And, and then it will be, you know, Southwest and Central Europe is the is the kind of classic definition. And then you know, bits that sometimes people carve out into into other divisions, but Turkey will sit as part of, uh, of Europe as well. Mm. I mean, Turkey in particular with a younger demographic, mm-hmm. startup culture, et cetera, et cetera. But again, not easy parts of the world to wade into and say hello can I start you know running a business so um are these ones that have been led by on the ground physical product and distribution or are you so are you pioneering with e-com or are you following up I mean for us Turkey is a market where we have what we would call a a direct-to-store delivery model so we will deliver from us from our distribution centers from our our factories direct to to an outlet so we have a good you know infrastructure that helps us you know get product into shelves because obviously it's a very impulsive product it's you know within a few minutes of a, of a walk in a, in a central city you can find a store with our, our outlet so for us turkey as a business has always had a strong infrastructure and then locally probably will have come across them gatir were started in in turkey in just like five six years ago grown i think they're in you know, 80 they're something everywhere. turkish mm-hmm. cities and you know 
an awful lot more across Europe. And, you know, they were a startup that, you know, worked very well with our, our products and our, our brands and, you know, our infrastructure in Turkey. And now we're, you know, working with them across across different parts of Europe. Mm. Before we carry on down the what you do mm-hmm. bit, which I'm sure many people want to know, <laughs> let's talk about how you got here. Yeah. Because I've already shown Megan the <laughs> very lovely Internet Retailing July 2012 cover, or a very proud moment, uh, with you looking supremely handsome as uh, one of the first people to get a master's in Internet Retailing. Congratulations. Um, So just tell us about you, uh, because in the nicest possible way, you're a bit odd Mm -hmm. in that you're not a normal retailer, coming from a normal retailer then doing e-commerce. You're somebody who's worked for these big companies where direct to consumers and strictly their primary business. So So just tell us a bit about how you got here. So rolling the clock all the way back to university, but believe it or not, in my final year, as opposed to writing a dissertation, I built a website. Um, So I was using Dreamweaver and Macromedia, fireworks and various other things, literally at the turn of the century, which makes me sound (laughs) insanely old. And I guess I've always had a an interest in you know how things work technically and you know computers and 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 that sort of stuff and my first job out of university I worked for a company that a part ultimately of the Omnicom media group a company called CPM their kind of main product is in-store merchandising experiential marketing and, and things like that so I was head office based building websites that they would use to report and communicate things back to their clients and actually, I worked on, for my sins, the Millennium Bug project, which if you, <laughs> I, even, I mean, the Millennium Bug that didn't actually yeah. end up being a thing, you know, was a, a good few months uh, bit of work. So I think I'd kind of say that I sort of fell in love with retail, but almost as a providing a service to retail when I was at, um, at CPM, worked there on a number of different customers, different clients in different departments. And then I kind of decided that I wanted to work for a company where Ecom or digital was a was a bigger part of their operation, and I'm always quite selective about where I will and won't won't go. And you know, cutting a long story short, I ended up moving to Vodafone, and was successful through an interview, and was very excited to join what was a under twenty people online team. Wow! That crikey, I mean, there will be hundreds of people now in um, ecom or online or digital at, at Vodafone, if not thousands. And so I was kind of part of, I guess, a retail operation there. So we were running an online store. Uh, we obviously, Vodafone has physical stores, has a has a call center. So I guess that was where first-party retailing of products and services became my thing. And I guess the intellectual interest that I always had with data and understanding what's, what's going on, I think you realize when you're in a company like Vodafone just how data-rich, I mean, they're a data business at the yeah. end of the day. Their, their product is is largely data now, but equally when you know what's going on on your website or in your app and, you know, you can actually see somebody make a, and they've gone from here to a physical store or they've, they've called up, you realize how you can connect that experience. Whilst I was there, I had the delight of doing my uh, Masters of Internet Retailing where I, uh, I met Ian as, as one of the kind of the leaders of that that group, met a number of different people. And also, I guess my interest had always been internet retailing and, and I learned so much more about the logistics, the supply chain through doing that course. I thought I'd be a little bit better maybe at conversion and optimization in that respect. And actually doing the masters just, you know, opened my eyes to the, you know, the extent of logistics and supply chains and everything else that really, really matters. I actually ended up being at Vodafone for eleven years. Um oh my in a, God. a UK role. So, you know, kind of hands on the, the wheel, the tiller, which wow. yeah, eleven years sounds sounds crazy. But now. the change at that time must be the change. Phenomenal. So I, I joined when David Beckham was advertising mobile phones. Um you know, so picture. for our younger listener, <laughs> yeah, sorry, David, Beckham. David Becker was once a popular football player yes. married to a spice girl. Yes, exactly. And he Is he advertised Sir David yet? I don't think he is, but I, I would say he should He's be. A nice He's a nice young man. He should guy. be, yes. And yeah, he advertised the first ever Vodafone Live mobile phones, taking pictures, which to now is just, you know, mainstay, but at the time was, you know, groundbreaking. And then I, I left as, I guess, Vodafone started to become a really digital, very, very digital business. We were doing some stuff. I was in the, the global team at the time on shifting the business model and the way that they, they approach things into, uh, I guess, digital, not just digital first, but digital so the whole team's pivoted into squads mm-hmm. and scrums and agiles and you know they've got a digital hub now based in based in London and i think you know seeing a company go from you know having a website team yeah. of 20 <laughs> people to you know an entire an entire business in a relatively small space of time yeah so mm-hmm. you know it was 10 years or so that i was there it was it was fantastic i loved every single minute of vodafone i got to do 
so much more than than I expected. But I kind of made a choice again, similar to when I moved on from CPM. I made a choice that I wanted to go to a a company or an industry where ecom or digital was important, but maybe you know a bit lower down the disruptive. Uh, and is that because you wanted place? to get your hands on a bit of? you know, kicking tires and playing with things and being part of that change or? I think, I think it is. Yeah. I, um, for me, it was a bit about applying my knowledge and experience and learning a totally different industry. Cause you take mobile phones and mm. services, people at the time, you know, they would probably renew their contract every two years. So they would spend an insane amount. In fact, Megan, we were, we were talking earlier, people research buying a mobile phone. So in depth, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. And you compare that to a packet of crisps, it's at the other end of the spectrum. It's it's impulsive. You know, you will do what you've always subconsciously done. You'll pick your mm. pick your favorite product. So I'm not saying I wanted to take the, you know, the learning and the depth of research yeah. of buying a mobile phone and apply it to crisps. But what I wanted to do was learning a different industry where the shopper behavior, the consumer behavior is is very, mm. very different. Um, but when you go to a blue chip international company yeah. known for excellence, robustness, etc., you say, I don't know anything about you I'd like to learn. Mm-hmm. I've never found that goes down too well in interviews. So can you just tell me about the the transition? You obviously didn't turn up and say, can I just play with your products, please? There would have been a Ali the grown-up saying, no, trust me, yeah. I could do X, Y, and Z. So what was that pivot point where you said, I can take all this expertise from Vodafone, and when I look at you guys, yeah. this is what I bring. So what was that sort of segue there's a bit of both sides of the, the fence here. So PepsiCo is, and I'm I'm not just saying this, it genuinely has an appetite for learning and, you know, pivoting and, and being a bit different and, you know, not just treating things that are very small as very small, but thinking about the, the longer term prospects. So there was a, through the interview process and the conversations I had, I was talking largely to non-e-com or digital people and they, they wanted to learn from people who had been there, been in e-com and, and digital. So you know, I guess for me, having spent the 11 or so years at, at Vodafone, connected with, you know, bizarrely my time at CPM, actually PepsiCo brought two sides of that together because, you know, there is still a big role for field marketing. There is still a huge role for in-store merchandising and, and things like that. So I was actually founding that I could have the conversation with PepsiCo in their language, mm. but translate it into, well, actually an e-com, you know, the equivalent of fixtures or gondola ends or that sort of stuff are you know, this this type of product service data driven um, type of thing. So there was, I guess, a little bit of where you're almost hired because of your knowledge and expertise to help a company not quite transform, but to pivot towards a space for growth. And I think that's what PepsiCo, even though Ecom was relatively small, I mean, now it's, you know, becoming increasingly large. But when you look at its contribution to business growth, it's it's disproportionate. And I mm-hmm. think that's where companies are now really starting to think we need internal and external kind of expertise to really, really fuse this a little bit more. So let's maybe look at that now, because, I mean, Jamie and I have been talking quite a lot this year about brands going direct Mm -hmm. and about the grocers, which especially over the pandemic have really come to the fore and we've seen, you know, how their innovation as a way of life their scalability, robustness as a way of life has really paid off for everybody these last couple of years. So when we look at the brands who are selling through grocers, generally speaking, then it's quite a complicated world because you're going from being a global brand with global standards, but yet dealing with everything from global peers, the Amazons, the Walmarts, down to corner shops, down to, you know, group of guys watching tv who want their doritos delivered (laughs) within 10 minutes so all of a sudden it's as if you've picked up all of the world's complexity in one go but with a heritage of of only really doing that through the channel stuff so just just tell me how you now approach e-com when they're probably more complex than i've covered but you know those three big channels the mega people there's a normal grocery and this direct to consumer which is relatively new PepsiCo refers to retailers such as Tesco as, as as our customers, and that's you know very much how we how we think of it. Obviously, we have consumers and um, everything else, but working with partners such as Tesco's and you know Asda, Morrison's, who are the omni-channel retailers, clearly through the well before pre-pandemic, but also through the pandemic, the the impact on them has just been you know disproportionate, and they want to work with partners who are you know working with them, not working against them, and so you know, we will look at our total you know focus on on a customer across the the multiple multiple channels then for ecom we also have 
you know, the pure play customers. So you mentioned kind of Amazon, but, it, you know, we, we actually classify Ocado as a, as a pure play, although it's a grocery proposition. They're a, a pure play retailer. And mm-hmm. us understanding what matters to that customer, that retailer, you know, Ocado has massive distribution capabilities in its, you know, four or five sites across the UK. And, you know, us being able to deliver the product that they they want to need in the, the speed and the, the time that they, they need it is is critical. And then increasingly we're seeing this, kind of i've already mentioned them the the quick commerce whether you rapid delivery i mean we were debating yesterday are they quick there's probably an evolution you've got quick rapid and then ultra fast so ultra ultra fast fast is 10 15 minutes quick is 30 minutes and then um sorry rapid is 30 minutes and then quick is just like two hours i mean when i was at vodafone (laughs) and we were delivering phones in four days and we were trying to get to next day and (laughs) you know so to talk about delivering something in in minutes is Mm. is kind of crazy and so looking at those those guys, they all have different needs, the product range, the portfolio, the activation, the the consulting, the guidance, the support you need. It's, you know, you're dealing with massive retail. You know, Tesco is, I think, probably the second or third largest online retailer in the UK, probably. So they, they know what they're what they're doing. But then equally we're working with a you know a Gatier, a gorillas at the other end of the spectrum who are just a few years old, if if that. And mm. so suddenly we have to be the kind of the consultant, the partner that they want to work with based on our knowledge of the, the category. And you've mentioned direct. I mean, clearly for us, direct is is many different things. I think, um, you know, we, we've started a few pilots is probably how I would uh, look at this. We've got a fantastic little proposition in uh, the Netherlands around Unwasted, which is a focused on sustainability. So product that's getting too near its end of life, finding ways to distribute that out is interesting. But right now we're seeing direct as, as a capability and I think for us right now, understanding what's the proposition that could be different in a direct model is is where it's interesting. You know, our products, you know, are within minutes of most, you know, households, whether it's on foot or in, in car. Mm. So, you know, us selling Walker's Crisp direct may not make a, a, a ton of sense, but finding a proposition that, that does work and, you know, obviously SodaStream is is part of our portfolio and that's a, a you know, a proposition that can easily be and already is fairly scaled in, in direct. I love the sort of thing. I'll share my story about that later on. Uh, but uh, the question I got with all of that complexity you just talked about, if you went to a normal, when I say normal e-commerce business where you sold a product, you know, kind of directly to a person who, you know, who wanted to buy something, what, what would be the biggest things you'd take from your current mm. role that you think would be useful? Mm. You know, I'm, I'm trying to look at the sort of, you know, the connection between the two. It sounds like there's lots of it, but there's lots of differences too. When I first joined PepsiCo, that I was encouraging people to do was to focus on what we're in control of. I remember at the time talking about, do we need an Alexa skill and, and things like that? And I'm, well, maybe, I, I don't know, it's difficult for me to judge, but what does our product look like on the shelf would be you know, where I'd be starting and the digital yeah. shelf, the product content, the images, the words, the descriptions, the ingredients, all these things are so, so critical. So I think to answer your, your question, Jamie, it's, you know, I would say, depending on what that that business is, focus on what you or that department is in direct control and has direct responsibility of and, and kind of build it above and beyond i think you know very often you see people come in with lots of really good and exciting ideas but i think if you haven't got those basics those fundamentals in place then you're kind of starting to build on the wrong the wrong type of foundation mm. in the old days there would be you and then other 200 pound gorillas in the market all chatting to tesco you know as etc trying to become the category captain and dominate the shelves. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that still goes on in the nicest possible way. But in the other channels now, are you finding that there are different relationships between you and the other people vying to get to squeeze into the channels of these mega grocers, the pure plays and so on? Has that changed the the way the business works? Yeah, I think so. I mean, probably subtly, it's probably it's it's changed the way that the business works because you know, yes, we're, I mean, you use the phrase category captain and, you know, we have definitions of categories and, you know, is it snacks? Is it salty? Is it savory? Is it, you know, <laughs> all, all these these different things. And depending on who that customer or who that retailer is, different products and categories will play a, a different a different role. And I think I've always encouraged my teams to be, you know, focused on how are we providing that best service to that retailer to that that customer because we have you know b2b customers we have wholesalers who sell online and you know yes knowledge of the product and pack shots and stuff is very interesting but equally case sizes and weights and 
other things yeah. that you just don't really factor in really becomes very, very important to them. So you have to have that kind of relationship with them to be, you know, whether or not you're picked as the category captain, you want to be the person that they talk to about things that matter in your in your category, but also more broadly than that. And I think for us, it's quite exciting, in particular in quick commerce or ultra fast, mm. because the relevance but not of rapid. That, <laughs> well, rapid too. <laughs> I was doing the two ends of the spectrum, but um because our products play such a big role, the retailers that are now growing and emerging in this space want to work with people like us because our categories are actually reasons that consumers go to their platforms as opposed to being things they just buy while they're on there. Oh, interesting. They are, you know, they are reasons that people go go to that that platform. So it shifts our, our role dramatically. And how much thinking do you have to do about your consumer? Because from an M&S perspective, our consumer is our customer. Yeah. And so we have the customer at the heart of everything that we do, but you have two very different bases to think about. So do you think about your customer, as in the Tesco's, um, the Gutiers, et cetera, and let them think about their consumers? How does that work? No, I think um, it's a really good question, Megan. And I remember when I joined from Vodafone, we had an obsession over the customer and it's a bit the same. Yeah, it was the it was the same person you, you were talking to. We have consumers, so the people who eat, eat the products or drink the products. <laughs> eat and drink. Yeah. We have shoppers, the people who buy the product. And then we have customers, so the, the kind of the people who would, oh, great. would sell the, great sell the product. And we have to be, we have to start with that consumer mm. back. Yeah, that's it's the, it's the same. We call them consumers. You would, you would call them customers. It's it's so important, and that's what our customers, our retail partners, want to have our knowledge of is the consumer and the shopper. Right. And um, sometimes it's the same person. I mean, increasingly, if it's a takeaway that they're buying, then it's you know nine times out of ten the, the person. But in the grocery shop, it's you know without being stereotypical, it is typically the the mum of the household doing the the weekly shop. So the teenage boy girl that they may have the, the specifier <laughs> yes the, the specifier may not be the actual buyer so you know the you, you have to consider those those different different dimensions and you know understanding what your consumer want is is critical but then you know the shopper and the, the customer becomes a really big and how really do you share factor. that because <clears throat> if you think about this as a venn's diagram mm -hmm. then there's some bits where you know more than your channel partner yeah and there are bits where they can look beyond you and think, well, we know what the other drinks and snack vendors know. And then there'll be regional, there'll be segmentation. So everyone's got a little contribution. Yeah. Um, what does the world look like in terms of shares and cuddles and data swapping and insight sharing? Is, is this a lovely world where we're all benefiting from you guys sharing data or is it a competitive, savage fist fight? I think... Um... I mean, any business now has to be um, has to to remain competitive. Has to has an element of data, and we do have the data that we had at Vodafone was very different to the data we have at PepsiCo. But the volume of data in both organisations is is colossal. There is work that goes on in in sharing data. Obviously, where you know laws and you know of course um, black dark rooms or whatever they're called all exist, but. Some of what we're dealing with isn't necessarily down at the identifiable consumer or shopper or um, customer level. A lot of it is kind of, you know, macro trends. Mm -hmm. So clearly that's stuff that we would work with our, our retail partners on. Um, and it would be directly with the, the retail partner. We know we are, you know, there'll be complementary products that we will work with. So, you know, there is a, as I often joke in our European teams, there is a British obsession with a packet of crisps with your, with your lunch. And so complementary... Is that actual fact? <laughs> yeah, I mean... Our marketers would probably call it something different, yeah. but um, there is genuinely a. And in fact, last year we did a, a fantastic campaign, crisp in, crisp out, about oh, hashtag sorry, crisp in, crisp out, about do you have your crisp in the sandwich or crisp out? And it turns out it's quite polarizing. Oh, it's I'm, very polarizing. No one has it in. Don't be ridiculous. Well, I'm, 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 I'm an Indian. I'm an Indian. No, there you go. So why would you have it outside? It's not a what? sandwich then. You lift the top of the sandwich with the crisps inside. You put the bread back on top. <laughs> See, to make a tiebreaker. Oh no, I'm an out. Definitely an out. Out, <laughs> Ali. There we go. So, I mean, it's polarizing even inside. Pepsi See, Al so, Ali's got his diplomatic face on. He's yeah. refusing. No, I'm definitely out. Question. Definitely out, and definitely oh walk with cheese and onion as well. But you've um, marginalised me now. <laughs> sorry, um, I've forgotten how I got on to talking about oh, to, um, data. Um, so, you know, I guess part of the the role that we play is also you know, taking our insight and turning it into, you know, something that's directly actionable for the for the right. retailer. And I, I kind of talk a lot at the moment about occasions, which sounds very dramatic, but 
people don't just buy our product. And I mean, sometimes they buy it and consume it on its own, but normally it's with another product, another category. So they're typically buying for an occasion, mm. we know, which could be a, a night in. And actually through the pandemic, I found myself, I don't know whether anyone else did, but in, in I, I say through the pandemic, in the height of lockdown, yeah. March to whatever it was, June 2020, planning a night in with the family at the weekend became very odd because I had to think, right, what will, you know, my daughter, my son, my wife, what would we want? Whereas previously we'd pop to a store on the, yeah. the Friday, the Saturday night, and now I was consciously planning it for the delivery from Ocado. And so that occasion was then being planned for. And I think the role now of us as brands that play into into occasions, and everyone everyone does, is to start to help our retailer to think about the experience beyond mm. the search mm. bar. And how do you, you know, in the way that and Megan, I'm sure you do in MS, you bring things to life. Yeah. You don't you wouldn't just put a top, you put you dress the whole the whole mannequin with yeah. an entire outfit. And it sounds crazy, but that's kind of what we need to do now with the the products because we need mm. to bring a bit of discovery and inspiration to the online experiences that we that we offer. If you were to rate yourself, as it were, as in the business in this brave new world, as it were, and, you know, give me as much detail as you, as, give us as much detail as you can. But, you know, are, are you guys at the cutting edge? Are you, are you, have you got a lot to learn? Is there much to grow into? You know, where are you in the journey? Um, I think we're progressing. Um, we are... <laughs> yeah. Diplomatic. Diplomatic. Yeah. I think we're, we're hungry to learn. We are... Um, you know, we are a business that don't have, I mean, Ian, you've asked the question earlier about direct-to-consumer. We don't have, you know, direct-to-consumer operations at scale that, you know, some other, you know, big CPGs have either developed or, or acquired. You know, I, mm. I think probably the, the one that will always be the, the post child is Nespresso becoming, you know, such a big way that people now consume coffee. It's it's kind of a very good example. But I, I think we've now got to a to a point where there is a real hunger, a real appetite. It doesn't matter how big something is it's teaching us an awful lot about what's what's going on and how is society shifting. So you know, we may not have a D2C business the size of Nespresso, but we have certainly got operations that are telling us things and telling us the learnings that can then help us have a conversation with a you know a leading retailer because we've got, I guess, that first party retail knowledge to a to a certain extent from some of the some of the things that we do. Maybe we need to develop a refillable crisp box that you take to re up at your uh, local Soho Crisperia. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. I'll, I'll feed it back as I, soon as I get back to the office. Yes, as in. Or the virtual office. Yeah. Megan, you were just uh, asking. My, my question was a bit of a, a tangent to your original data question. Um, and it was more about how you share data between your brands. Just from my experience in M&S, when I first joined, we were quite bad at sharing data between our own categories, never mind across such a large portfolio of brands. How do you identify different consumer segments and do you group together brands to go after those consumers as a, a powerhouse? In all honesty, we do genuinely have like one set of data that we will cut different ways to look mm. at different you know brands, consumers, segments, you know, there's... And one thing that I find fascinating about FMCG is the level of thought that goes into products that make it onto the shelf, the, you know, pack format. I mean, the phrase pack price architecture may not mean that much to many other people, but it's it's talked a lot about, like, how do we make sure that we've got the right, you know, range on the, on, on the shelf? Mm. And we will look and we will cut data... You know, so a roll of Doritos is very different to a roll of, you know, what's its quavers or... When you um, say roll, it sounds like they have purpose in life, like yeah. their job is being world peace or <laughs> to fire off certain endorphins. What, what do you mean by a roll? Is this as in, you know, for one's for a Saturday night with a family snack, the other is for self, uh, you know, uh, enjoyment as you get off the tube? What, what do you mean by roll? I, I think probably the... Who are they? I mean, role is probably a, a grand term, but who are they talking to? So, you know, Doritos has a huge kind of, I guess, cut across with like a gaming community, for example. And then other parts of our brands will have a, you know, a cut across into a, you know, people looking for a, a healthier choice in, oh, what in what they're doing. So we have things like Walker's Baked, which is, you know, I, I guess is actually, it's a really critical thing now because people... You know, people do want an element of indulgence, but a better type of indulgence, if there there is kind of a, a phrase. And we think about where do things sit almost in spectrums. And, you know, we, we have visions, you know, we have all these statements about, you know, we just want people to have, you know, more smiles and sips, I think, with with every bite is the kind of, or more, more smiles, smiles with every, every sip or bite is kind of the, you know, I, I guess the mantra. And I think, you know, increasingly, you know, health and sustainability are becoming big focuses for us in many, many different ways. And when I talk about the role of brands, it's more about 
what is their I guess their their moment that they're trying to you know um, it does come back to the storytelling and connection and yeah. you know the modality of you know people's consumption as well it's very interesting yeah uh, well, look, Megan, if I can drag you away from your role as ace interviewer, yeah. um, <laughs> tell us about what you do at MS because until, I uh, don't want to be harsh, but innovation has always been a tricky word at MS mm-hmm. because, you know, maybe stable, reliable might have been more tip of the tongue ones. Yeah. But yet we've also seen you guys doing some pretty flashy bashy stuff this year as well Mm -hmm. as if you know the whole thing's woken up so just tell us how innovation fits in and your team in particular yeah of course so I think M&S has had a history of innovation but primarily product innovation so we were the first retailer to have a melting in the middle chocolate dessert um Percy Pig Percy Pigs Colin the Caterpillar exactly um we, we focused primarily on product innovation, but didn't really look at innovation from a whole business perspective. And especially, I think we were a bit slow to act in technology innovation and thinking about technology and digital as a core pillar of our business, which we now do. And I think over the last two years, we've taken a, like strides forward in leaps and bounds in thinking about technology digital and innovation as a whole and so where my role comes in and my team we work on open innovation so combining the very best ideas internally with the best um, stakeholders startups scale-ups externally to de-risk innovation to co-create some products that are market leading to really give us that edge in in our existing markets and help us um, reach new markets as well. Mm. Now open innovation was the first of a number of really important phrases there. Mm-hmm. So innovation uh, has two characterizations that mm-hmm. I'm sure aren't entirely fair. One is the sort of genius with flying hair, burning the midnight oil, <laughs> dragging ideation from mm-hmm. their skull. The other is an elite quarterly targeted sales force selling you innovative products mm-hmm. that you then adopt. But open innovation sounds like it's neither of those and is a combination of, well, a cultural approach to innovation. Can you just maybe open that out a bit so we understand what open innovation means specifically in the m and Yeah, of course. So open innovation, it is partly that cultural perspective. It's how do we get all of our colleagues across the business, whether they're working in stores, in our support centre, in our supply chain, thinking in a more agile, with a uh, mindset, with a growth mindset, in an innovative and entrepreneurial way. If I have this idea, how can I test it really quickly to, to check that it's a good idea? And then how do I implement it at scale? Sort of getting our colleagues to approach innovation in a a less fearful way and with less sort of weight to it. I think in a large organisation like M&S, we we talk about um, the treacle, like of wading through a big corporate. Mm. um, And we want to, in our team, help unblock that. So how can we make our processes really quick? so that our colleagues all across the business can innovate and we create an innovation culture. But in practicality, when we talk about open innovation, we're talking about bringing in startups or scale-ups to address problems in the organisation or opportunities that we don't currently have the capability to solve so that we can take that extra leap forward on top of what we're already doing. So that all sounds great. And then I'm just thinking of two questions. Mm-hmm. One is around the fail test cycle. Yeah. And the other is about letting people innovate. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the second one. Having been, you know, sacked for many roles in the past, <laughs> I've been through lots of transformations where people internally are saying, we need to do X, I'd like to do Y. They're all ignored. And then somebody parachutes in called Director of Innovation mm-hmm. or Change Director with a big budget where they play, fail, leave. And everyone says, well, you know, why can't we do it? So how do you really connect innovation with the people who are deep subject matter experts mm-hmm. in their jobs but are 97% busy? 
how can you unlock their ideas and really make them a partner rather than just a spectator of innovation? Yeah, excellent question. So what we do in our team, we're, we're a team of three people and we sit as a layer on top of the organisation. So we've spent the last two years since our function was created in 2018, or oh, three years now, Ooh. Uh, ooh. <laughs> Time <flies. laughs> um, just really working on how we can have a streamlined process, how we can create a network of partners, an understanding of the key trends and innovation happening in like a global market so that when our colleagues decide that they want to innovate, they know who in the organisation to come to to help unlock that for them. We don't have the idea, enact it in in a vacuum and then go, okay, it was good and give it to an already busy team. We work on more of a pull model where the team goes or comes to us and says, this is what we would like your help with. And we make make it happen with them. So you're hubby. You're like a little hub. Yeah, we're like a little little innovation hub. I like that. So a gyroscope of ideas. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to ideas. The number of meetings I've been in where people talk about we love innovation, mm -hmm. we're a test and optimise company, blah, blah, blah. And then you ask everyone around the board how they deal with failure. We don't do failure. We have A, B tests where A is excellent and B is excellent. Mm -hmm. No one likes to have the test that doesn't work. So I remember talking with a, a former CIO at MS who was commenting that he had the innovation team, the development team, but he said, I also run a bank. And he says, nobody wants you to be agile and innovative mm -hmm. with their current account. So how do you balance the idea of innovation as being, you know, you're feeling a way that may not be 110% M&S approved mm -hmm. quality stamped? How does that work culturally and practically? I think it all has to come from the environment with which we create for our colleagues. So the permission to innovate has to come from the top down. We have to have our senior management all across the business say, we will allow you to fail. We give you permission to try something, spend a small amount of budget and, and give something a go. And if you fail, it's not a naughty, naughty, go sit on the naughty step. You don't get to do this again. It's a, what can we learn from this? Can we share this with a different part of the business that they can learn from this so that we're we're not keeping our knowledge in silos and our experiences in silos. We're sharing them all across the business. And I think that permission empowers colleagues from the bottom up to innovate. Mm. And I think that successful innovation programmes, I'm not claiming that ours is. I think it's still too early to tell. But I think... A mark of successful innovation program is that you get the permission from the bottom, at uh, the top down, and the power and the change from the bottom up. And how do you document learnings? I think that's a, it's it's still a, a tricky thing to to execute efficiently because the time that it took you to go through all of those lever arch files, those learnings might have been really insightful, but was that worth your the spend of your time and I think that it's, it's not something that we've got right yet. We've identified that what we do in open innovation isn't relevant to everybody. It's not something that everybody around the organisation needs to be thinking about and enacting daily. An innovation mindset is, yes, but actual practical mm. implementation of innovation is not. And so what we've tried to do is bring together a community of innovators from across the business through quite standard channels like a, a newsletter, uh, a SharePoint where we as a team constantly keep innovation updated, um, information updated, innovation on the brain, um, <laughs> information updated on what different teams are doing. And I find that just that share of information through conversation, getting that community of innovators together, talking about different subjects, it, it helps share and demystify mm. what certain areas are doing, but then also just brings up oh, so-and-so trialled this technology three years ago and it was a total disaster. So, okay, can we see the PIR from that? Can we, can we learn PIR? from it? Um, Project initiation. Mm, no. Ooh, What's I it stand for? I should guess post-implementation review. That sounds, oh, that excellent. sounds right. But not passive infrared. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who knows? <laughs> okay, so you, you do have a review. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think that, I think that it, 
it's still a, it's still a process that we're, we're learning, mm. open to any suggestions. Well, I'm sure that our, <laughs> our listener will have one. So uh, uh, look forward to that flurry of mm-hmm. one email. Um, <laughs> now, Megan, how does one get your job? Tell us, tell us how you got it. Well, my career history is significantly shorter than Ali's. <laughs> we know about the radio, though. Maybe we should start there. Student radio. Student radio. Um, I started doing natural sciences at Lancaster University and realised, although I love the environment and science, I didn't quite see myself standing in a river taking water samples for the rest of my life. Um, And I did a module on eco-innovation and we had a a speaker from Unilever come and talk to us about how Unilever were innovating in plastics to make their black plastics more recyclable. Mm -hmm. And I thought, hmm, that's quite interesting. And so I then went and did a master's at Newcastle University in innovation, creativity and entrepreneurship. And in that, we started a business as a group. We learn all about startup culture. We learn about like organizational design, innovative thinking, product design, all of it. And that then spurred me on to joining the MS grad scheme, which was new for the year. It was called the Enterprise Scheme, now called the Generalist Scheme. And it meant that we sort of cycled around the business working on the most like cutting edge, innovative, quote unquote, projects, just almost like internal consultants where we arrived, we learned all of the new skills, we were the sponge, but we also got to to work at quite a senior level and deliver ideas. And the freedom that I was afforded in those roles were was fantastic. And I just got the opportunity to have an idea, such as I saw over um, the first lockdown that our food and flowers gifting was up 200% month on month. And I thought, we don't have a a clothing and home offer of a clothing and home gift box. Why don't I see if I can make Mm. one? And so my manager was very supportive of that. He said, off you go. And it sounds quite simple. Take several different products from across the clothing and home business, put them in a box and sell them to customers. But that took eight months. <laughs> Everyone's laughing because we're just thinking about, oh, they different parts of the warehouse, they different yeah. <laughs> how they consolidate. Just thinking back to Ali, most of the people that we get around the podcast table who love their jobs and love their lives have this thing about at an early stage in their career, they were allowed to play. So for me, it was being a young chartered accountant, pencil behind my ear, walking into places saying, I don't understand, explain me, please. Mm-hmm. Then digital came along, and I could walk around saying, I don't understand, you don't understand, explain to me, please, we can play. <laughs> so, you know, each generation has its own liberation that allows you to walk in and learn from other people, cross the normal silos, et cetera, et cetera. Question, how do you bake that in with your teams? Because, Ali, you, you now have got a team across Europe. How do you make sure that your team gets that freedom to play and learn and be be an Ali when they grow up? Um, and then we'll come to Megan and see how the reality of doing a big company links mm-hmm. back to the theory. But, you know, this play, is it important? Do you think I'm right? or uh... It definitely is important. And I think there was an interesting point that Megan made about the permission from the top as well. I think that kind of creates a little bit of a culture if you've got... The, the senior leaders asking the question about you know small things that you know in the grand scheme of things are um, are new and innovative if they're interested and there's always been a you know a PepsiCo Vodafone everywhere I've worked there's always been a, an interest in new and innovation to a to a certain degree but I mean at PepsiCo more specifically we we did create I think it was quite subconscious really we put the ecom team in a different office so we had a we work in in London deliberately to almost appeal to, to different types of people. We put them near some of our, our larger, you know, let's call them more digital businesses. And I think pre-pandemic, there was a definite different feel in that office. It was a different horizon they were looking at. And uh, I think that was great. Equally, they were, you know, helping us deliver stuff to screen, you know, that day. Um, but equally, there was a, a horizon that they, they were looking at, innovation, portfolio innovation and you know, something that, for example, that was born out of that that team would be a Doritos advent calendar that we had a, a year or two ago. That I mean, people were pre-ordering it on Amazon. As you say, it as the Doritos next year's. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know we could create these these entire new new different things. And 
you know, I, I think that's part of the the point. We had to bring teams together and people together. And yes, they've got a practical role to do with our, our day-to-day experiences, but there are either people mm-hmm. or there's, you know, element of their role that is encouraging that that creativity. And I think, you know, through the pandemic, it's been harder to create that, you know, that that viral effect almost of the mm-hmm. the innovation and, and creativity. But I think we're starting to get there now. Mm-hmm. And I feel quite excited about the you know, step change that the the pandemic has brought, and now the the profile that ecom has, both within our business but also more broadly, it's kind of, yeah. uh, I think it's quite an exciting space. Mm. And so, Megan, you have covered a lot of these organisational design, ideation flows, all this kind of stuff that you have done at master's level, untainted by the cut and thrust of office politics, yeah. uh, people not sharing the same objectives, etc. Et so, when you landed at M and S. You have this privileged view of being able to go around the organisation. And I must say, it's one of the nicest places ever. I mean, you just don't meet unpleasant people at m yeah. So I'm sure they've been very welcoming. But were there any bits where you thought, you know, this isn't like the textbook or when I uh, start mentoring master students, I will tell them X, Y and Z. <laughs> where, where was the difference between theory and practice in innovation? Oh, what a great question. I think... In time, I think the pace at which we get taught that innovation happens from a scholarly perspective, you don't have the perception of how long it took and how many people you had to engage as stakeholders. I think that my primary skill is stakeholder management. That is the thing that my job hinges on. I can have the best ideas. I can have the like most cutting edge business knowledge but without being able to bring people into my cause I have no hope and I think that that's one thing that you don't get taught from a textbook and that's something that I immediately discovered working in M&S. That's interesting I feel we've kind of been on this sort of journey here which is you know been heartwarming for me which is we've covered innovation we've covered data but we keep going back to this idea of leaders uh this interpersonal cultural thing which you know is actually i think as we come out of the pandemic and start meeting people again is uh, is a really nice mm. point on which to start wrapping up in fact let's wrap up <laughs> ali megan jamie from new york in your in the echo chamber guys what a lovely episode thank you so much for sharing thank you thank you uh we haven't finished really because we didn't talk about metaverse. You started this, Megan. Tell tell us about the metaverse. I love the metaverse. What are you doing in it? I think that the future of the metaverse in retail isn't the gaming reality that everybody is talking about. I think that metaverse means for retail a mixed reality. So getting customers not only looking at the omni-channel journey, but the mixed reality journey. Because you've just done some posh stuff that we covered recently with your shopping uh, thingy, shopping streaming. Wasn't yes, it? yes, yeah, live streaming. Yes, yes. Um, I temporarily had a brain <laughs> like I, I was, uh, I was in the metaverse rather than the real universe. Uh, so, what did you do there? So, um, we've got two different types of live streaming shopping currently live on site: one to one and one to many. So, you can phone up and have a one to one consultation to buy your sofa on MS. But you can join now to have a shoppable live stream. This technology came sort of from Asia really early in, I would say, 2020. So on the cusp of 2019, 2020. And there's hit UK markets with such speed and pace that everybody, every large retailer is sort of dabbling Mm -hmm. in the live stream space. But we managed to find a company called Hello Lisa. um, And I really like them because they allow you to check out on your own checkout in your live stream. So for example, I'll be showing um, the new sports top from the the Good Move range. Other other products are available. (laughs) (laughs) And um, our customer watching the live stream will be able to scroll through the products, um, click on that, add it to their own M&S bag and check out on our website. 
and mm. nobody else was doing that. So the opportunity to control the customer and check out yeah. was fantastic. Interesting. Interesting. Megan, can I, can I ask you a question? Because you're steeped in this uh, innovation and change and all that sort of stuff. You've been doing that all the yeah. time. But you know you said in your pool model of your colleagues, you know, mm-hmm. they come to you, as it were, rather than you go to them. First question is, how do they know what they what they need? Is it like they're not steeped in the innovation that you have? And then the other one was, um, how do you prioritise for them? I, I should have asked it before, but I couldn't really get, a, get in. No, two great questions. How do they know? I think everybody knows what problems they face, but having a sounding board to be able to go to someone and articulate that problem, that's probably the, the new element there. I think when you're super, super busy, you can sort of in the periphery see the opportunities that you're not addressing. But what we do is help like free up the time for people to address those problems in a really dynamic and innovative way. And then the latter question, I think that what we've been asking for is like a, a loose business case. So what what will the impact be if you can't quantify it in terms of like financial benefit? What is the impact on customer sentiment? Because we don't have to innovate for monetary return all the time. Sometimes we can innovate for, for just pure customer enjoyment. Mm. And so we haven't said no to a project yet. That's probably a sign more of our, <laughs> the, <laughs> the immaturity of our function and of our, of our team and how we need to get further deep rooted into MS and the high level innovation priorities that our mm-hmm. business units are focusing on but we've just had some really great ideas i can't i don't think i can share any with you oh, um honestly, sorry tease. but but watch the space in the next year oh, or so that means you can just claim anything good was one of these ideas <laughs> that you was my tell exact us plan it, you bury everything else um great questions there jamie ali are you doing anything uh metaversal it's on the radar. I think I would I would describe it as. I was really interested in what Megan was saying about the the blend of realities, and I, and I think that's probably you know for us on the on the horizon. I would say so. Mm. Ian, you and I were talking about some things we've done with a a well known takeaway uh, takeaway retailer about gesture control on on menus. So you know as you go into a you know takeaway now, a lot of it is digitized screens. Mm-hmm. You know through COVID, people weren't keen on touching things as much and. You know, we've innovated with this takeaway partner on the gesture, you know, to help them use the menus. And, you know, we've had fantastic results given it's, you know, relatively primitive technology. But you can, you know, metaversally take that into the, you know... Metaversally. It, you said it. I've said it. I've, 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 I'll, I'll patent the, uh, the word if that's a thing. But, um, but if I'm wearing the, the goggles... And I'm, you know, therefore my, my gestures are are relevant. And if we're starting to understand those those gestures, you know, we could connect, whether it's that gaming moment, I don't know, with, you know, some of our, our brands. And then if you think about the infrastructure from the metaverse through to, you know, where you are, because you are still somewhere physically. Mm-hmm. And with all these delivery platforms, you are, you could be getting products from the, yeah. the metaverse almost to your to your door, mm-hmm. dare I say, in, in minutes. Mm-hmm. So to say we're doing much in this, this space would probably be stretching it but i think it's increasingly becoming something that big brands you know big retailers will have to consider and i'm quite intrigued by the the, the work that mns is doing because we're starting to see live shopping cropping up for mm. grocery retailers now yeah. which you know when you think grocery retailers lots of products added to baskets in in seconds kind of thing those occasions i was talking about earlier might be the thing that we can we can start to innovate a lot more with because i think people want that from their online experience they don't just want the I can get anything I want in minutes or next day. They also want a little bit of excitement and enjoyment. And, and I think making the most of technology that's available, including metaversal stuff, is probably the, the, the future. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I'm sure the word's going to come up more than once this year. Uh, should we go from metaversal to lunching? <laughs> 